0: Please open your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and this, minute, this morning, Lord Willing, we'll complete our study of this fifth chapter. It's been a it's been a profound study as our Lord declares his deity and gives probably the fullest, most detailed explanation in any one place of what it means for him to be the son of God, very God of very God and yet Submissive and obedient to his father. Then, in the second half of this chapter, Jesus marshaled up the the many witnesses for such a claim. Um, That theme is still going in our section this morning, but he rounds the corner into unmasking, accusing, um, rebuking the Jews in Jerusalem, explaining their unbelief. The title of this morning's message, Understanding religious unbelief might be a little clunky my it's better than my first attempt the theology of religious unbelief Um, but I, i do believe that's what jesus is doing here he's explaining to them and john by recounting it for us is explaining to us how it is that studious very religious men and women, who studied what we would call the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, what we would call the Old Testament, who knew it inside and out how they came to hate and want to kill their Messiah. How can such very religious people, connected with true religion, they're not often some cult with some other text, they've got the Old Testament, they've got the books of Moses, how did they come to reject and ultimately crucify their Messiah. So let's read verses 37 to 47. We'll have a word of prayer, and we will try to sort through these things. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Lord God, help us to see, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear this rebuke to the Jews in Jerusalem. Help us to understand what is at work in the heart of unbelief. And not just as a study for for the unbelievers out there, but the unbelief in our own hearts, the unbelievers in this very room, Lord, that, that we might Come to Christ and have life. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. This is an interesting passage of Scripture, and I suggest to you that John intentionally wants the focus to be on what Jesus says. How do I say this? Well, we're told in chapter 5 the Jews' response at various points. He heals the man, and then we're told in verse um, 16 of chapter 5 this was why the jews were persecuting jesus because he was doing these things on the sabbath so jesus acts and we get the response to the jews they're persecuting him and then jesus in verse 17 makes a bold statement jesus answered them my father is working until now and i am working and then we get the response from the jews in jerusalem this is why the jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the sabbath but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, so in the first two movements of this narrative, Jesus acts, we get the response to the Jews. Jesus acts, we get the response to the Jews. The rest of this chapter is Jesus speaking, and how does it end? No response from the Jews. John isn't interested. I would suggest to you that John's entire narrative in this chapter is to set up what Jesus says in this second half. To give us the context and the occasion and the cause But he's not interested anymore in what the Jews have to say or respond to. this. Surely if they're trying to kill him before, they're after him now. He doesn't make a word of it. He wants to let Jesus' words, his judgment, his explanation hang, ring in our ears. Chapter 6 just picks up after this. So I, I really do think the content of Jesus' discourse here is the focal point of this chapter. Everything was getting us here. I suggested that the healing of the man was in some sense a pretext Jesus creates to set up this conflict. He picks one man, he doesn't heal everybody. Nothing about the man indicates he's a person of faith. The man goes and tells on Jesus, Jesus finds him again so that he can identify him because the guy didn't even know who Jesus was. And then he points the Jews in Jerusalem to Jesus, they come to Jesus, then he makes this provocative statement, they want to kill him, and then he speaks, and that's it. So this discourse, this dialogue, not, it's not a dialogue, I'm sorry, this discourse, starting in verses 19 all the way through 47, I think is the focal point. And everything else is meant to get us here. And then this then becomes the crescendo Of that discourse. Jesus makes his strongest statements of condemnation and of judgment against the Jews in Jerusalem, who moved from persecuting him to trying to kill him in the space of two verses. And so you can ask, what is the significance of this passage? What what why why is this valuable for us? I want to suggest along three lines as we study through this. First and foremost, and most obviously. John is repeating this, telling us this, so that we might understand how it is that God's own people, his covenant nation, Israel, how they rejected their Messiah. How could that happen? They were attentive. They were alert. They were looking for him. Jesus says they are diligently studying scripture. How did they come to cry out, kill him? We have no king but Caesar. How'd that happen? So John will tell us how that happened. The second function I think this might have is to explain how even in our own day, there can be people who read, study the Bible, and yet don't honor Christ as king. This might, this might explain some of the more liberal denominations or some of the Christian cults. How, how, how do Mormons not believe Jesus is God? How can they, studying the Bible, do it? How... How could that happen? Not, not necessarily that John 5 explains all religious unbelief, but at least at the very least, a certain type of religious unbelief. That there's a type of person devoted to a form of religion, devoted to the word of God. What the Jews were studying was the word of God. Make no doubt about that. And they were meticulous in their, their treatment of it, in their copying of it. They, they didn't play fast and loose in that sense with the text. And a third third application for us might be this that just as the jews were very religious and dealt in some sense very seriously with the word of god we might be in danger of the same thing we might i mean that's really the check for us we might be in danger of memorizing scripture studying scripture reading it and yet us ultimately rejecting it in subtle ways as well so understanding how this happens is important for us so that we avoid their errors and i could even suggest a fourth function here negatively we can we can take this and flip it positively and and discern what it is about true faith that saves remember john is concerned about helping us understand the nature of faith and in this passage He uses a number of phrases to describe both negatively what they're not doing and by implication what they should be doing and what they're not doing and what they are doing that they shouldn't be doing. I'll I'll show you a couple. Verse 38, you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. So you can pick that positively. I guess we should believe in the one he has sent. Verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Well, I would suggest saving faith comes to Christ. And we we can work it that way. So along those four lines, understanding in this particular context what's going on, understanding in our own day some of the types of religious unbelief, understanding even in our own hearts what might be leading us to the same error, and then flipping it backwards by, by looking at the negative example, learning something about authentic saving faith and discipleship to Christ. So by, with that as a way of introduction, let's begin in point one about these Jews in Jerusalem. They are ignorant of the Father and his words. They are ignorant of the Father and his words. So i remind you of what Jesus has argued after making his bold declaration, my father's working until now and I am working, thus making himself equal with God. After saying that, he he goes on to make it very clear that even though he is fully equal with the Father, he is absolutely submissive and obedient to the Father. Uh, He makes the bold declaration, I can do nothing from myself. Um, he only does what he sees the Father doing. And on that basis, we can conclude that Jesus then is the perfect image and example and representation of the Father. This is a doctrine the New Testament will reiterate multiple times. So Jesus has established that everything he does and every word he speaks and every action he takes and the very works that the Father has given him testify to who he is because they reflect perfectly the God who has sent him and commissioned him. That's the basis of the argument here. They are ignorant of the Father, and that then explains why they don't recognize him. If Jesus' whole point is, I I look like the Father, I act like the Father, I speak like the Father, I do the works of the Father, but you don't know the Father, and so you don't recognize me. I, I think that's along the lines of his argument. What... This also, I think, helps explain how some of the Jews that we saw in chapter 1 so quickly concluded Jesus is the Son of God. If, if, they, if you know the Father, then it doesn't take long to recognize you. that that's the, same. That's, the, that's the same works. That's the same voice. That's the same person in regards to his activity. So they are ignorant of the Father and his word. He says it in three statements. You, his voice you have never heard. You can put your blank here. They are deaf to the Father's voice. His voice you have never heard. Now, this, because this text culminates in Moses, I'll use Moses as my example. In Exodus 33.1, we learned that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. The people of Israel themselves, at sign, I heard the voice of God. They didn't like it. And they said, Moses, you go up and talk to him lest we die. But the congregation of the wilderness heard God's voice. Deuteronomy 4.36, out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. On earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. So the generation in the wilderness and at Sinai with the giving of the law, they heard God's voice. The Jews of Jesus' day in Jerusalem, they hadn't. His form you have never seen. They're blind. There's your blank to it. So deaf and they're blind. And again, John has already iterated that in one sense, no one has ever seen God. Go back to chapter 1, verse Verse um, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus ultimately reveals and images God. But in another sense, you can see God's form in the word of God. There is a way in which you can speak of that. In Numbers 12.8, God defending Moses to those who challenge, why does Moses get to talk to you and we don't? Why does Moses get to tell us what to do and we don't? With him the Lord says, Numbers twelve, eight, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So Moses saw something. Even up in the cleft of the rock as God walked by and covered him, and his glory passed by, Moses saw something. His face glowed. And those reading the text see something of God's form and his person in the text of Scripture. But he brings it to a head now with his charge. His charge, this is cumulative. It's all making one point that they are ignorant of the Father and his word. You do not have his word abiding in you. That has got to both sound ridiculous and absolutely insulting to the Jews in Jerusalem. From the best we can figure out, the Jews of Jesus' day, certainly the Pharisees, and there's some overlap here because in chapter 1, the Jews who sent to John the Baptist, and Jesus has identified at least some of these people are those, were Pharisees. As best as we can tell, many of the Pharisees memorized the entire Old Testament, plus an additional body of rabbinic literature, like commentaries, equally as large. Um, The exact point doesn't matter. They knew their Bibles. Their Awana drills were long, (laughs) right? And Jesus has the audacity to say, you do not have his word abiding in you can imagine what you mean i can recite it here you want to see his word abiding me i will recite deuteronomy these are people who could probably do something like that but then he gives these explanations of what he means what's the proof how can he make such a claim you don't have his word abiding in you well the proof is you don't believe in the one he has sent And that's that's the formulation of the logic. Remember, how does John's gospel first introduce Jesus? What title does John give him? Before we get to the titles that we're familiar with, the King of Israel, the Messiah. What title does John give him? Unique to John, in the beginning was the Word. You don't have His Word abiding in you. Why not? Because you don't believe in His Word when His Word comes in flesh and blood. That's the argument. The argument is, I so image the Father. And I so reflect his activity. And nothing I do is authentically from me individually. I do nothing from myself. I only do what I see my father doing. And I see everything that my father is doing. Therefore, my reflection is perfect and complete, plus or minus nothing. But you don't come to me. So you must not know the one I look like, and I sound like, and I act like. That's the nature of the argument. That's the basis on which Jesus can speak. And like I said, this explains why Nathaniel and the other disciples can so quickly make such bold declarations. This is the one about whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. You spent an afternoon with him. Yeah, that was enough. That was enough. In many respects, this is the most authenticating work of the Holy Spirit to testify to God's word and to God's Son. I mean, I enjoy apologetics, and I enjoy the many good arguments and reasons we can give why we ought to believe, why we ought to bow the knee to King Jesus. And there's a number of lines of apologetic arguments in the New Testament, but I think the simplest, most profound, and and most powerful is this. God's voice is all around us. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. This is the basis upon which Paul in Romans 1 can say, Everyone knows God. Everyone understands he exists. Why? His divine power has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. That's why I'm an ah, ah, atheist. Don't believe in atheists. Because no one on the day of judgment could say, I didn't know. I didn't know you were there. No, God insists his communication is clear and received and understood. So there's, there's communication, there's information going on around you. Every sunset, every blade of grass, every chirping bird crying out to God for its food is, is testifying. And he's given you a witness in your conscience speaking to you, condemning or excusing you. And then you, then you read the words of Jesus in scripture and you say, that's the same voice. It's the same voice. That's the same one who speaks. This is why Jesus says in John 10, we'll get there eventually, when the shepherd has brought out his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. Why? They know his voice. The stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So the first point of explaining how these Jews who study scripture, memorize scripture, memorize scripture, copy scripture, treat with great reverence scripture, is they don't know the Father. They have not heard his voice. They have not seen his form. And they do not have his word abiding in them. And the proof of that, they don't recognize his voice and his image and his form in the one who is the word of God come to them. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 makes this point. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in son, as if the language God spoke was son. Jesus is the final cumulative and greatest communication of the father. If they were those who had heard his word in Scripture, if they are those who had seen his form in Scripture, heard his voice, they would recognize his form and his voice in Jesus. And they don't. So, first part of understanding their religious unbelief, they are ignorant of the Father and his word. That ignorance is demonstrated by not recognizing it in Jesus. Not recognizing his voice in Jesus. Point number two. They misunderstand the scripture. They misunderstand the scripture. Jesus moves on. And in one sense, these four points kind of flow into one another and develop one another. This this is picking up off the last point. You don't have God's word abiding in you. He's going to develop that further. You search the scriptures, he says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus grants them a diligent search. That word for search is, 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 speaks to study and energy. These aren't lazy people when it comes to their use of Scripture. They're doing something wrong with it. But what they're doing is energetic, disciplined, focused. You can, you can study your Bible day and night and profit nothing from it which brings up a question, is, is Jesus correcting them? You, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Is it wrong for the Jews in Jerusalem to think that in scripture is eternal life? Is that, is that wrong? Is Jesus correcting them? I mean, ter, turn to Psalm 19. Turn to Psalm 19. Could not a strong argument be made that in the scriptures is precisely where we find eternal life? I mean, listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 19. After first speaking about the revelation of God in nature and creation, he then turns to the revelation of God in Scripture and he writes this Psalm 19, 7, we'll read 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? Reviving the soul. That sounds like life. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter are also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them. There is great reward. Were the Jews of Jesus' days wrong for concluding and diligently studying the Scripture because they thought that in them they had life? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. The reason why I say yes and no is the scriptures are a pathway to life. Psalm 19 makes it clear they revive the soul. But but the Bible is not a magic book. These aren't magic verses that if you just read them without understanding, you're going to profit by them. Um, My my old pastor used to say, the meaning of scripture is the scripture. And what he meant was, until you actually understand what the text says, and I would go a step further, and receive it, Instead of kicking against it, you don't have the word of God. The meaning of the Bible, what God meant when he wrote it, that's the word of God. And the Jews don't have the right meaning. Why? Because Jesus says, they testify about me, and you don't come to me. So somehow, even though they're searching the scriptures and searching the scriptures, they miss or reject, Jesus will clarify a little later, is this this an accidental misunderstanding or an intentional misunderstanding? But all I want to say at this point is they get the wrong meaning out of Scripture. Now, how that is, we'll we'll get some clarity on at the end of our passage. But they diligently search the Scriptures and yet miss somehow, either intentionally or accidentally, that they bear witness about Jesus. The proof of this is, Jesus says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Scriptures contain life in that they testify and point to another They testify and point to Jesus. And you you can't benefit from Scripture if you read it simply like you might want to read and study another corpus of literature. There there is a way. There is a way you can study and revere the Bible like you study and revere the works of Shakespeare. But no student of Shakespeare thinks these are historical records that actually happened. And so you can memorize the movement and you can quote from the plays and you can study the dramatic arcs And you can track out literary devices and subtle themes. You could teach Shakespeare and never once think that Shakespeare is reaching outside of itself, referencing something else, because Shakespeare isn't. There's a subtle danger in doing the same thing with Scripture. These are powerful stories. These are testimony of our heritage and what our people have believed. These are the stories that shape our lives. We find meaning and significance from The scriptures, rightly understood, drive us to a person, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, in our instance. They drive us to a person. The emphasis here, we'll see, is do they, are they willing to believe Jesus? Is Jesus trustworthy? And until you're facing that question and that person, you aren't rightly understanding the scriptures. The scriptures drive you to a person. Um, We're we're not saved by truths about Jesus. We're saved by the Jesus the truths are about, if that makes any sense. Ultimately, we're trusting in him. We are trusting him and not just stories about him. And if that bifurcation seems too subtle, that's fine. We're, We're believing in Jesus because of the testimony of God's word. But that faith ultimately has to go beyond the text to a person who is outside of the text, who is Lord And the the Jews were not doing that. They searched the scriptures diligently. And yet, they evidence they don't understand them. Why? Because the scriptures bear witness about me, Jesus says. And the proof that they don't understand them is they don't come to Jesus that they may have life. They don't come to Jesus that they may have life. It's tragic. And that is the ultimate tragedy. That's one of the reasons I think John puts this here. How more tragic can it be for someone in hell? than to know the hours they spent studying this word. Then to encounter face-to-face the word of God. Not only did these Jews have the immense privilege of, as Paul says in Romans 2, the oracles of God. Or is that? That's three. Romans 3. But these Jews, Jesus talking to, got to -to face-to-face encounter with the living word of God. And they refused to come to him. Notice notice the emphasis. This starts to give us the hint. This isn't an accident. There's some stubborn unbelief here. In fact, I'll play my hand. He he says at the end of the passage, you do not believe Moses. Their misunderstanding is willful. Their misunderstanding is due to refusal to believe Moses and a refusal to come to Jesus. And Jesus will give us some insight on why would they do that. These Jews, unless they later repent, will spend eternity in hell, and they will, they will have been people who were so close and yet so far. They had the word of God in their hands. They had the living word of God in front of them. And they refused to come to him that they may have life. This is another metaphor for salvation. Turn back to John 3. Um, Jesus is going to pick up on some of the th- themes in John 3. And again, John's gospel... The gospel of faith in Jesus is also the gospel that most explains to my mind unbelief, the nature of unbelief, why. Why it is that people don't come. And in John three nineteen to 21, which I really find paradigmatic, after Jesus to Nicodemus were told, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light that's the link in here jesus says you refuse to come to me i wonder why that might be everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in god okay so the proof that they misunderstand the Scripture, they refuse to come to Jesus. And now we're going to start to find out why. Is it it that it's an honest mistake? They misunderstood. Oops. It's hard to blame someone who makes an honest mistake. No, this is not an honest mistake. Point three. They love the glory that comes from man. They love the glory that comes from man. Verses 40 to 44. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Now we're shifting. Or are we from talking about Scripture to talking about glory? And Jesus starts, and here's your point A, the contrast. Jesus' contrast. He's different from them. He says, I do not receive glory from people. He's already told us he doesn't receive witness from people. Look at verse 34. He says in verse 34, um, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. He doesn't need man to testify concerning him. That's why he didn't trust himself to the Jews in Jerusalem, after all. He needed no one to bear witness about him. He also doesn't receive glory from man. You're not going to flatter Jesus. Make him change, well, if you're going to say such nice things, if you're going to sing with such gusto, I guess. No, he doesn't receive glory from man. Not in that way. But, but the Jews Jesus is talking to do. Jesus contrasts: I do not receive glory from people. Then we get to his charge. This is the second thing they don't have inside of them. Notice the parallel in back in verse um, thirty-eight: You do not have His word abiding in you. Verse forty-two: You do not have the love of God within you. Those are the two direct charges: You do not have God's word abiding in you, and you do not have God's love inside of you, within you. That's his charge. What's the proof? Again, bold statement. What do you mean, Jesus? We don't have the love of God within us. We reverence his name. I mean, the Jews took the reverence of Jesus' name so great, they wouldn't even say God's name. Even nowadays, they just praise to the name, Hodul they won't say his name for fear of blasphemy. In, in one sense, and from one way of looking at it, these people took God seriously. They revered the God of the Bible. And yet, they didn't have the love of God in their hearts, and His word was not abiding in them. It's got a sting. What's the proof then? Point two proof. What do you mean you know the love of God within you? I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. And again, the, the logic is Jesus' association, Jesus' representation of the Father. How can you say you love the Father when the one who looks like and talks like and acts like and has been sent by the Father is here and you want to kill him? It's nonsense. I know you don't have the love of the Father in you Jesus says, why? Because you're trying to kill me. And I came from him. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. This also links back with chapter 1. Look back in John 1. Verse 11 and 12, he came to his own, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And when we study that verse, I emphasize that receiving Jesus is not as simple as the UPS guy hands you a package. Jesus insists, and the whole conflict here is, Jesus insists, receive him as God. Receive him as one equal with God. Receive him as one speaking God's word. Receive him as one greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, or you don't receive him. We've already seen in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, they're willing to receive Jesus as the miracle-working prophet from God. That's not good enough. The whole point of this conflict is Jesus thing. you've got to understand, I'm equal with the father. My father works and I work. And they don't want to receive that. And so I I suggested the reception is far more like a wedding reception. Here is King Jesus. Will you receive him? That's the charge here. You don't receive me, he says to them. The proof? I've come in my father's name. You do not receive me. Further proof. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Extra-biblically, we know that there are many people claiming that they're messiahs, with various rabbis getting behind them. Jesus warns about this in Matthew 24, 5. Other Christs will come. But ultimately, I think the clearest proof of this is when they cry out. I mean, the Jews, they're so nationalistic. They, they hate Gentile scum. And yet, Jesus so enrages them by exposing their sin and their guilt that they will cry out at the end of John's gospel, we have no king but Caesar. Yeah, if another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. What's the proof they don't have the love of God within them? They don't love the one who God has sent, but they'll love other people. They'll love other people. Which brings point B to their inability, their inability. That's the point of this rhetorical question. The answer is assumed to be negative. How can you believe? And the is you can't. Now we're starting to explain their unbelief. Why is it they could not believe? In one sense, these Jews could not believe. And their inability, we'll see, doesn't excuse them and actually makes their guilt greater. They're unable to believe. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? You see, the, the fundamental issue here is idolatry. Their idolatry. You see, see, we talked about this when we studied John 3 19 and following. There are certain loves and desires that preclude other loves and desires. Jesus says this plainly, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one or hate the other or hate the one and love the other. And so in one sense, salvation is as simple as believing in Jesus. But when we hear about repentance and the scripture talks about that, it's focusing on the getting out of the way the other loves and the other trusts that block it you can't have two masters repentance is viewing turning from something and faith is turning to something and here what is making them unable to believe oh they love the glory that comes from man they can't how can you believe clear implication they can't what stops them they they love the glory that comes from man and so there'll be no believing in jesus and no being saved by jesus until that changes and so when we speak of repentance that's what it's talking about: is the, the severing of that commitment to sin or any other would be treasure or good thing or glory that is what prevents us from coming to Christ. Why don't they believe? Why do they misunderstand the Scripture? And we see the reason is not some innocent matter on their part. They're idolaters. They receive glory from one another. We read in the other Gospels they'll have, they'll go out to do good work, and there'll be some other Pharisee sounding a gong. Look at him. They, they, they invite each other to their parties and they, they jockey for the high seat at the table. They're all intent on the glory that comes from man. And that love, and the reason I put love there is it's in contrast with the love of God. They receive glory proving they don't have the love of God within them. I think by fair implication, they love the glory of man. They seek the glory of man. They value the glory of man. And the love of the glory of man is what makes them unable to believe in Jesus. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Point two, their apathy, and do not seek the glory that comes from only God. And again, it's this either or. You can't have two masters. You can't have two gods. You can't have two treasures. They're seeking after something for sure. They're receiving something for sure. And it's the glory that comes from man, the praise that comes from man. And while you love and serve the glory that comes from man, guess what you don't love and you don't seek and you don't desire? The glory that comes from only God. That's, that's the reality here. Tur- turn to John 8. Turn to John 8 briefly. I think we have time. Yeah, we have time. John 8. Jesus makes similar points here with some Jews who had believed in him, which should garner our attention. This this passage always challenges me because in one sense, you can be said to believe in Jesus and in another sense, can still be a son of the devil. Look, Look at verse 30. As he was saying these things in John 8, many believed in him. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That's pretty similar to God's word abiding in you. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They take umbrage at that, these people under Roman thumb and occupation. you are never enslaves to anyone. And so they go back and forth. Now pick it up in verse 49. This is after, of course, Jesus had said to the Jews who had believed in him. Look at verse 44. You're of your father the devil, he said to the Jews who had believed in him. Let's pick it, let's, we'll pick it up in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. That's pretty similar to you haven't seen his form or haven't heard his voice. I do know him. I would be, a li- if I, say, I love this. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. He was so seeker sensitive. <laughs> but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he saw that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus is not seeking his own glory, but the glory of the Father, the only God. He doesn't care about the glory that comes from man. And so he never gets off mission. He never loses focus. He never wavers. And we can factor in how concerns of what other people might think, which is a form of slavery. Serving, seeking, desiring what other people think. Is a strong master. That's what these Jews were doing. They received the glory that came from men. They sought the glory that come from men. And that was the evidence that they did not have the love of God in their hearts. And that was the evidence that they did not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Idolatry and apathy are the cause of their inability and their refusal to come to Jesus and their refusal to accept the writings of Moses that speak about Jesus. It's moral at nature. This is not fundamentally a mental problem. It's not an honest misunderstanding. This brings us to point four. They stand accused by Moses. They stand accused by Moses. Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words?" They stand accused by Moses. Even though Jesus has said in this chapter that all judgment and all authority of the judge has been given to him. He says, I, I won't need to stand up to give evidence against you. I won't be the prosecution's primary witness. Moses will suffice. Moses will condemn you. You put your hope in Moses, fine, be judged by Moses. This is part of God's justice. He doesn't hold people accountable for what they don't have. Paul makes this point in Romans 2 pretty clearly. Gentiles who don't have the law won't be judged by the law. They they won't be acquitted. They'll be judged by their own consciences, and they'll be thoroughly condemned. And here, they've put their trust in Moses. That will be sufficient. Oh, certainly Jesus could give testimony. Jesus could accuse them, but there'll be no need. Their guilt will be firmly established by Moses. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Self-condemnation is your blank here, point B. Self-condemnation. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So you're, you're disciples of Moses, are you? He's the one you're trusting in? You're sons of Abraham? Okay, let's see what Moses and Abraham has to say. And simply on the testimony of Moses, they will be condemned. They will be condemned. Tur- turn again back to uh, chapter 1 again. So many of the themes that show up in John were laid out in the opening 18 verses. And this is no less true here. Verses 14 through 17. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has just said that the true disciples are those who seek that glory, not the glory of man, but the glory of God full of grace and truth revealed in Jesus Christ. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me for from his fullness. We have All received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John has already established Jesus brings a greater grace than Moses. But even if we were to judge these Jews by the grace that Moses brought, they would be condemned. You put your faith in Moses, you put your hope in Moses, Jesus says he'll condemn you. And then we get to the ultimate point of their misunderstanding. Their misunderstanding isn't a mistake. It's intentional and willful unbelief. Point C, they are unbelieving. Self-condemned and unbelieving. For if you had, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is important things here. They didn't ultimately misunderstand Moses. Otherwise, you couldn't charge them with unbelief, right? You, you have to have a certain level of cognitive understanding before you can believe or reject. So you put this together. They, they, Moses was plain enough. They didn't like the implications of what Moses said. And so they refused to believe Moses, and therefore they refused to believe Jesus. Why would they do that? Well, because the implications of Jesus would be they would have to forego the glory that comes from man. As Jesus says elsewhere, pick up your cross and follow him. Jesus makes it clear. People who get crucified in Rome don't have glory. They don't receive glory from men. They're the scum of the earth. They're the the most ashamed and despised of all people. Jesus tells his disciples, if you want to follow me, get ready to be despised. Get ready to be treated poorly. Get ready, in other words, to not get glory from man. But you will receive glory from the Father. You may be one of those who hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so you follow Christ because that's what you want. I want that glory. And Jesus reveals that glory. Well, they didn't believe Moses because they loved that glory, evidencing they did not have the love of the Father in their heart, evidencing they did not have his word abiding in them, culminating their refusal to come to Jesus that they may have life. And so Jesus says to these Jews who may well have memorized the entire books of Moses, you don't believe Moses. What's the proof you don't believe Moses? You don't believe me. And again, we get another statement of inability because God's truth is a unified whole. Um, I I had an analogy once um, given to me by a professor at Word of Life. If I have a pizza, sometimes people do this with Scripture. When you're talking to an unbeliever and they're tripping up over a passage of the Bible, they're tripping up over some truth, whether it's God's truth about um, marriage or whether it's God's truth about creation or whether it's God's truth about whatever, whatever their issue is. It's a mistake I think to sidestep that, as if to say, I think this is the pizza analogy. This pizza is God's truth, and they, they take a bite of the um, wives' meant to your husband's piece, and they spit it out. The patriarchy, they hate it. Ugh. And you say, okay, okay, you didn't like that slice here. But here's the here's the love your neighbor slice. Maybe you will like that one. It's the same pizza. This is foolish, right? Oh, you don't like the Genesis creation slice? Okay. That's fine. We can get rid of that slice. Here is, the, um, here is the second coming slice. You're going to love that one. No, the same God who spoke in Moses is the same God who speaks in Jesus. And you can't pick and choose what you're receiving and rejecting. Look at the, the clear implication. If you do not believe his writings, Jesus says, how will you believe my words? Clear implication, you can't. Can somebody reject Moses and believe Jesus? Answer, no. That's, that's what Jesus says. Can you believe Moses and reject Jesus? No. Can you reject Moses and believe Jesus? No. It's a package deal because it's the same one speaking because Jesus is the word of the Father who spoke and wrote Genesis and Moses in the New Testament. And so you're rejecting the testimony of one person we're one triune person. Or, I'm getting this, but it was three persons, one. The triune God, the testimony of the triune God. I don't want to be a heretic. Let's be safe here. Okay, I'm getting into trouble. So, that, that is the reason they did not believe. We, we will sing our last song, Mike. Let me, let me try working this backwards for those of you who may be sitting here. John has given us, in exposing the nature of the unbelief of the Jews in Jerusalem, some explanation, even for people today who read the Bible. Sing the Bible, recite the Bible in various contexts and place, but don't come to Jesus. But, but flipping it backwards, if you're here today and you, and you want to know how to come to Jesus and have life, there's plenty of information here. Let's just look at these briefly. What, what should we be doing? What should they be doing? What should their response be? He says, you do not have his word abiding in you, verse 38, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. So here's one. Read his word to try to have it abiding in you. But ultimately, you know you're reading and receiving his word because you're believing in the one he sent. Verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In chapter 6, John's going to emphasize this. Whoever comes to me, I'll never turn away, he says. Come to Jesus. Have life. Or, verse 43, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. Okay, then receive Jesus, but receive him as he declares himself to be, not some nerfed, shrunk down, good teacher, but as the living God, the son of the father, full of grace and truth. What should you do? You should stop caring about, repent of the fear of man and the glory of man and seek the glory that comes from only God. You should, you should do that. And you should believe God's word. Genesis to maps. It's a joke. You should believe God's word and 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 give up any attempts to pick and choose, to make a Jefferson Bible where you cut certain parts out and you keep other parts. One person is speaking, one voice is communicating. And Jesus makes it clear it's all or nothing. It's Moses and Jesus. And I'd throw in, and Paul, or it's none. And ultimately, believe. Believe in the one he has sent, and believe his words. I'm going to close in prayer while I call the worship team up. Lord God, I pray that you would give us that faith, that we would receive Jesus for who he is, that we would come to him, that we would not stumble over his teachings, that we would receive your word made flesh, and your word inscripturated as one. And we receive you, that your love would dwell in our hearts, that your word would govern our minds, and that the one you have sent would be our God and our King. Give us faith. Work it in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.